everybody. Thank you for joining us for an honest symposium on race relations. We are here on the lovely campus of UBC. Uh, we opted to do this event outside because of uh, COVID-19 uh, restrictions. And so here we are. My name is Lillian. I am president of UBC Students for Freedom of Expression. Today we have three professors with us who will be speaking on the issue of race relations, uh, specifically how it relates to university. Um, so first off, we have Professor Eric Kaufman, who is a professor of politics at the University of London. Uh, second, we will have Professor Charles Nagy, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Central Florida. And then finally, we have uh, Professor Rima Wilkes, who is a professor of sociology here at the University of British Columbia. Um, after our three professors speak, we will have an opportunity for an audience question period. So that will be from the audience in person as well as online. So uh, those of you watching in the YouTube live stream, feel free to drop your questions and comments in the chat, and we will select some um, to be read out to the panel. Thanks. Great. Well, I'm delighted to be here. My name is Eric Kaufman, and in case you think I'm a fraud because I'm from talking to you from London. I'm actually from Vancouver, and, and it looks like a glorious uh, Vancouver day, so wish I was there with you. Uh, not so warm over here. Um, I'm just going to actually speak more about my, my book and some of the arguments there, and then hopefully that's going to segue into a place that, that will dovetail nicely with what Charles is going to say. I'm going to show you quite a bit of slides and data since that's sort of integral to my work. And then um, we'll return to a discussion. So let's give this a shot. Hang on. Um, okay. Let's try that. Okay. So this is really my book white shift. Can everybody see this? I do. Okay. Good. So this is uh, my book, which came out in 2018 with Penguin and, and in 2019 in the U.S. Um, with Abrams Press, and it's really about the question which I think frames a lot of this debate, uh, uh, certainly the debate over the rise of populism and the polarization that we're beginning to see. And I've got uh, a couple of uh, concepts which uh, frame this. One is the idea of majority ethnicity, ethnic majorities. These are communities that share uh, a belief in being descending from common ancestors, but who form a majority in a society. And so if we think about white Americans in the U.S., leaving aside the fact that they are a melting pot of different European ethnic backgrounds, that, that would be an example of an ethnic majority. <clears throat> or the white British in England uh, are, are another example. Second concept is that of the nation, which is the territorial unit. And nations are not only defined by uh, something like an American creed or uh, the French Republican tradition of the revolution. But also they have other components such as landscape, accent, and even ethnic composition, which are sort of secondary, what, what are called everyday components <clears throat> of nationhood. And that desire to protect or defend those secondary everyday components of nationhood is, is also an important part of what we are seeing in populist politics in Europe and in North America. And around the key issue here is, is that of immigration. Uh, that is becoming uh, the, the pivotal issue in Western societies that, that is, underlies a lot of the populism and polarization we see. And also is critical when we come to talk about 
definitions of racism and polarization around the meaning of the term racism. So, for example, uh, is restricting immigration the same thing as racism? That is a key Rorschach test for, for where you're going to stand uh, in the culture wars. Just for a bit of backdrop, the demographic shifts that are occurring in Western countries, which are, this is not made up, this is absolutely documented with, with reams of data. This is a projection that I, I made with a demographer at the London School of Hygiene, where we uh, looked at England and Wales. And you can see that this white share of the population, which is about 86% in 2011, uh, is on its way down to below 50% towards the end of the century. Now, Canada and the United States will reach that point about 2050. These changes are taking place in Western countries, and this is the backdrop to a lot of the po politics of immigration, which is underlying things like Trump and Brexit and the Sweden Democrats and so forth. Um, so this is crucial. This demographic shift is crucial, and immigration is sort of a lightning rod, a symbol of this change. Just to show you how dramatically this has split our politics, we can look at the share of white Americans who want less immigration, uh, starting in 92, through the Clinton years, through the Obama years, and then up to Trump. We see that um, Republicans and Democrats don't differ very much through much of this period on whether there should be less immigration. About half of them say there should be. But then by the time we get to see the election of Donald Trump, uh, only 20% of white Democrats versus 70% almost of white Republicans uh, want to have less immigration. So a massive polarization around this issue takes place. Um, Conservative voters said that's too many, compared to only 20% of liberal and NDP voters, which is a big 45-point gap. So that increase from about a 10 to 15-point gap to 45 points in Canada. Here's another question that allows us to see at the percent of Canadians saying there are too many visible minorities amongst immigrants. 2013 and 2015, 34% of liberals, 47% of conservatives. There's not much difference. It's about a 10, 15-point gap right up to 2015 and then boom 
it's up to 55 points by 2019. And that's kind of showing a very similar pattern to what we've seen in Britain, or particularly in the United States and to some extent in Britain. This polarization over the immigration issue by party, and that's driving a lot of the partisan polarization we see. Now, one of the points I make is that these divides, the rise of right-wing populism, the rise of polarization is fundamentally a cultural and not an economic issue. Uh, again, immigration is central for explaining the rise of uh, phenomena like Trump and Brexit or the populist right in Europe. Um, if we consider, for example, this graph from a sample of 25,000 from the British election study 2017, if you ask people what's your probability of having voted to leave the European Union, um, amongst British people who said we want essentially zero immigration, uh, over 8 in 10 of them voted to leave. Uh, amongst those who said we want many more immigrants, it's basically zero. So you got an 80-point gap between the most restrictionist and the most pro-immigration British people. Next to that, uh, the different income bands here in colors from the high-income people earning over 60,000 to the low-income earning less than 15,000 pounds. There's a 10, maybe 15-point difference but that's nothing compared to that big 80-point gap on immigration. Same thing in the U.S. with the Trump vote. Um, people who want to reduce immigration a lot, over 8 in 10 voted for Trump. This is just white Americans. Uh, those who want to increase immigration a lot, under 1 in 10 voted Trump. So this immigration issue, enormously useful in terms of telling us who's going to vote for populist right candidates. Nothing there happening on the different income bands. Again, to show that it's not the economy stupid, it's really about immigration. And immigration, by the way, in case those of you who are interested in this, is not underpinned by uh, economic, um, personal economic <clears throat> circumstances either. Um, the number and vote, the, the size of the immigration inflow is very important in telling us what's going to happen with populist rights of party support in the West. Uh, this is from the United Kingdom, and net immigration is this gray line. In 1997, the Labour government comes to power under Tony Blair. We have a big jump from about 50,000 net migration a year in 97 up into about 150,000 and then up to 250,000, and eventually went up over 300,000 under the Cameron government, uh, Tory government. Now, along with that, the share of people saying immigration is the most important issue facing Britain rises from five, under 5% in 97 up to approximately 25% by the early 2000s. And then just prior to the Brexit vote, it was actually around 40%. So you have this huge increase in the number of people saying immigration is the number one issue facing the country as the immigration numbers are rising. Uh, and that's what lays the groundwork for Brexit and phenomena like the rise of the UK Independence Party. Similarly, in Europe, 20, uh, this is the share of um, uh, non-EU citizens entering the European Union from 2008 to 2013. It's flat at about four or 500,000 a year. And then in 2013, it starts rising. 2014, it starts rising more and it peaks around almost 2 million with the my European migrant crisis in 2015, late 2015, then comes down again. Um, if we look at the Eurobarometer survey data in Europe, the number of people saying immigration is the most important concern 
uh, in their country and in the European <coughs> Union rises along with this increase in immigration to a peak of 2015 and then dropping. Now, there have been a number of studies, one of which is uh, James Dennison of the European University Institute. Uh, and he looked at 10 West European countries between 2005 and 2016 and showed that the uh, priority that people give to immigration, the share of people saying that's the number one issue facing the country, uh, is significantly correlated with support for the populist right. So parties like the uh, Alternative for Germany uh, really take off in the 2015 migrant crisis. Same with the Sweden Democrats, same with Wilders' PVV in the Netherlands. They're all generally rising during this period, whereas the 2007-8 economic crisis had no effect, uh, no consistent effect on populist right support. So immigration really is the um, the key issue in explaining this phenomenon uh, starting in 2014. And we can see this another way, which is the, if you look at Western Europe, um, the proportion Muslim projected for 2030, which is a combination of current Muslim share and um, the increase, uh, the pace of the increase of immigration, uh, is highly correlated with the strongest performance of the of a populist right party. So France, the Front National, uh, now the Rassemblement National, has um, you know, obviously is doing a lot better than populist right parties in Portugal, for example, which has a very low uh, Muslim share. And it's not strictly about Muslims, actually. I mean, Islam is, is part of this, but this is a barometer of the rate of ethnic change, the degree of ethnic change in a society, which is correlated then with populist right support. Um, but of course, and, and the key here, work by Karen Stenner and others shows that it's not that people are uniformly responding negatively to immigration. It very much depends how you are psychologically wired in a way that, that roughly, well, some people like diversity and change. Other people see difference as, um, uh, as sort of messy or divisive, and they see change as loss. So that point of view that that seeing difference uh, as division and change as change as loss is different to seeing difference as interesting and change as stimulating uh and that uh propensity to see things one way or the other is very much well it's about 50 percent hereditary actually uh it's not something that can be learned or taught out of people entirely uh it's something ultimately as stenner argues that needs to be respected and this is where i think we start to hit a problem is that there isn't Right now, I would argue in elite institutions, a willingness to respect the part of the electorate that wants, for example, slower cultural change, more assimilation versus more diversity and so on. So it's not just a divide over um, whether you like change, yeah. diversity and change, but it's okay. also a divide over the morality Good. of managing that diversity. Is it moral um, to restrict immigration? It's not just right, do you so like the cultural change immigration brings, or do you prefer continuity and stability? It's also, what do you think of the morality of a party campaigning to reduce immigration, which is something that is pretty pretty embedded in most European populist right, and even center-right parties, and actually increasingly some center-left parties. Uh, but for some, that's anathema. For some, the definition of racism has expanded to include uh, a position that would want to reduce immigration. Why and where does that come in? And I just want to sort of talk through the major cultural changes that are coming um, from
from the 1960s. And this is maybe important context for what Charles is going to say. Uh, what we see is something called, which is Matthew Iglesias at Vox calls the Great Awakening since 2013, this huge uh, upsurge in liberal attitudes amongst particularly white Americans on questions around race, diversity, gender. Um, we can actually trace, I would argue that is less new than people people would uh, would say, that we can go back and look at, for example, the increased use of the term racism in American English, which takes off in the late 1960s, when incidentally, uh, we see a lot of the campus protests and the activities of the, the Black Panthers, the Students for De Democratic Society, and so on. Late 60s, we see a rise uh, in the use of this term, a sort of plateau for about 10 or 20 years, and then late 1980s, early 90s, when the term political correctness comes about, Afrocentrism, comes about. The book, uh, Alan Bloom's uh, Closing of the American Mind is published in the late 80s. Um, Culture of Complaint uh, is another book in this genre. So just cataloging the rise of speech codes and political correctness, that coincides with another boost in the use of this term. And then we have post about 2013, what Iglesias calls the, the Great Awakening. I would argue it's the third uh, major religious awakening for this belief system, which which we could call the cultural left, the successor ideology, you know, cultural Marxism, whatever you want to call it. I, I actually don't think, I, I use the term left modernism, which is, I think, the most accurate term for this ideology. It's not Marxism, it's culturally oriented, identity oriented, rather than class and economics oriented. And we see, by the way, that pattern with racism, we can see it more or less with sexism, the use of that term also going through these awakenings. Um, but this then brings me to, to this moral division over immigration. It's not just about whether you like the change or don't like the change. It's how you morally evaluate those who uh, would restrict. Uh, and that's, I think, a key question for a lot of the culture wars we see. And so, for example, if we take this idea, uh, which I, this is, this is a survey question I fielded in late 2017 in the US and in Britain. And the question reads, a white American who identifies with her group and its history supports a proposal to reduce immigration. Her motivation is to maintain her group's share of America's population. Mm -hmm. So this is getting at this term uh, racial self-interest, which Shadi Hamid uh, uh, mentioned in a, in, a, in a Washington Post article. Uh, can we distinguish the idea of group self-interest, uh, of kind of clannishness and insularity, from racism. And the question here says, well, this person's motivation is to maintain their group's share of the population. Is this person, one, just acting in their racial self-interest, which is not racist, or two, being racist? And that's the key difference here. And it turns on your definition of racism. If you believe um, that somebody who is acting in their group interest, which in the case of a white American might be, well, my group's interest is to restrict immigration since there are very few uh, white European immigrants coming to the United States. Uh, that's the best way I can serve my group's demographic interest. Now, is that stemming from attachment to in-group, or is it stemming from uh, hostility to out-groups? If we look at psychological research of the past few decades, it shows very clearly that attachment to in-group and hostility to out-group are different dispositions which are not correlated in ordinary circumstances unless uh, you have a zero-sum competition, which is typically uh, occurring during a period of warfare. It can also occur 
uh, in applications for a job, which is when I would argue racial self-interest can become racism. But this question is very interesting because it, it really serves as a kind of Rorschach test for uh, people's perceptions of the meaning of this term racism. So white Clinton voters who have a postgraduate degree, over 90% of them say, well, this person's being racist. Whereas white Trump voters with less than high school, it's only 6%. Uh, in Britain, white uh, British people who voted to leave the European Union, that number is zero, who say that this person's being racist. They would all say acting in their racial self-interest, which is not racist. And I think this is a very crucial distinction between attachment to own group and hatred of the out group. And in fact, Ashley Jardina in her book, White Identity Politics in 1991, ha does quite a bit of statistical work which shows that, in fact, white identity and racial resentment have separate statistical effects and are largely uncorrelated. Um, and this is, again, an example of something where we, in the a lot of debates, these these two concepts of attachment to in-group for white Americans, for example, and hostility to the out-group are simply collapsed into the same. It's assumed that white Americans who are attached to being white are hostile to other groups. And yet the survey data shows, in fact, there is no correlation. White Americans in the American National Election Study who are more attached to being white are not cooler towards blacks than white Americans who are not attached to being white. Uh, and. And anyway, I, I don't have time to go into further detail on this, but Canada and Britain and the United States have very similar white identification patterns insofar as the people who tend to identify as white or, or as black or as Asian or as Latino tend to be people who have strong attachment to their ancestral groups. So if you attach strongly to being Irish or Italian, you tend to attach strongly to being white and vice versa. Same if you are attached to being Mexican or Cuban, you're more attached to being Hispanic. The, the, the one is simply a larger category compared to the other. Um, just to really round out here, I know I, how much time have I got here? I've kind of lost track. Oh, anyway. Um, the idea here is that in this slide, I try to look at Canada and say, well, this battle over the definition of racism, the expansion of the meaning of the term racism to include, for example, wanting to reduce immigration shows up, I think, quite clearly in the Canadian case, too, with this new, Maxime Bernier's new populist party called the People's Party of Canada, which wants to reduce immigration from about 330,000 to something like 100, 150,000. Um, if you ask Canadians uh, what they think of the People's Party, one of the responses that I offer here in this survey is to dislike the People's Party because they are a racist party. Um, amongst Liberal NDP and Green voters, almost 60% give this answer. And that's people who've heard of the party because almost 30% haven't even heard of them. So this is suggesting that over three quarters of Liberal NDP and Green voters see the People's Party of Canada as a racist party, which is really quite astounding since the party really has not been uh, saying anything about uh, the inferiority uh, of, of minority groups or trying to direct vitriol uh, at people of color and so on. It's very much, uh, I think, a reaction that is about Hello. expanding the meaning of racism to include anybody who's campaigning to reduce immigration. That's seen as morally oh. illegitimate and therefore can be subsumed how, how within this category of racism. And that's really quite a, a revealing uh, number. Very similar, by the way, to what we saw 
in that question uh, in the slide about uh, white Clinton voters with degrees in their views of restricting immigration in the United States compared to white Trump voters. Um, just final slide, which is, is to say that a lot of the partisan polarization that we see uh, is driven by these cultural attachments that be, because the issues are increasingly cultural, um, that you can see, for example, here that support amongst conservative voters for Trudeau is sort of in single digits uh, compared to liberals who are much more bullish about it. Okay, I'm going to see if I can return. Okay. Okay, hi. All right. Uh, you, can everyone hear me? I do. Okay. Okay, so to really recap this, uh, essentially what I've argued is, and I argue in the book, is that um, the cultural conflicts, uh, particularly over the pace of ethnocultural change, that fundamentally explain the rise of uh, right-wing populism and also the polarization that we see in many Western countries. It's not just a polarization over how diverse or rapidly changing our societies should be, but also around the ethics and morality uh, of no. campaigning to address the concerns of the no. 30 to 50% of electorates that want, or, or up as, as high as 70% of some electorates who want slower change. Uh, and I think unless we're going to be able to address that without rancor, unless we are going to be able to find an intermediate position on the pace of immigration, on the meaning of, of the term racism, uh, we are going to find ourselves mired in the same acrimonious polarizing politics we find ourselves in today. Uh, so I, in the book, I very much argue that um, yeah. we've got to look at what the psychology and the data tell mm -hmm. us about psychological attack yeah. in versus hostility to outcome. We have to, to find room for a legitimate version of uh, ethnic majority attachment and of those who are attached to a, to a version of national identity within which some of these ethnic characteristics uh, are component and which they want to slow down change to, to allow assimilation to occur. I think there are clearly things that are racist, for example, being against interracial marriage or not wanting certain groups in your country, uh, and that should be called out. So it's not as though nothing is racist, but it's a question of how far are you going to expand that category? The more you expand that category to take issues off the table, the more you're actually going to build up frustrations, which are going to lead to the emergence of people like Trump. We're going to channel those frustrations. So partly, uh, populism is a failure in many ways of established elite institutions to uh, give voice to what I think are legitimate um, legitimate preferences within the population. Uh, and it's that argument over the boundaries of this term racism, which I think are extremely important. And I think with the, the sort of great awakening approach, which is to try and maximize the definition of racism and expand it to cover as much as possible is I think a very, very detrimental uh, force in, in public life. So it's not just about political correctness, it's also about the downstream effect of shutting down uh, debate. Because what happens is when it becomes racist to talk about reducing immigration, the mainstream parties can't touch it. And the only people who can touch it are populist white entrepreneurs. So all you're doing by shutting down that debate in the Senate is creating a market, if you like. It's a bit like the Soviet department store it's only selling one color of pants, 
uh, well, then what's going to happen, a, a black market's going to pop up selling blue jeans and other things people want. Doesn't mean we should supply everything. We don't want to supply segregation and, and, and uh, uh, second-class citizenship and so on. But on an issue such as higher or lower levels of immigration, that's perfectly legitimate, in my view, for parties to supply. And if they don't, they're simply going to open space for some of these populist entrepreneurs. I think I'm going to leave it there and turn it over to Charles. Okay, so I assume you guys still can't see me. Is that correct? I can't, I can't uh, yeah, your screen is. It doesn't have your. It doesn't have the uh, C that it would normally have if you didn't have your uh, camera turned on. It's just black. Um, well, I don't know what to do because I see myself just fine hmm. <laughs> among those of you who have your cameras on. Um, and it says your camera and microphone are being shared. So I guess I'll just speak. And I'm sorry, not, not only, it's a good thing, unlike fine um, man, Eric, who had lots of charts to show you, I had none. That's kind of a good thing, I guess. But if you can hear me okay, I'll just get into my spiel. Yeah, we can hear you yeah. great. All right. so. Even though my topic might be in the ballpark of what Eric has spoken on, um, it's also quite different as well. So I hope what I have to say has some relevance to what the purpose of this meeting was. And if it doesn't, then I please accept my apology in advance. So I'm going to start off by sharing with you that I was born in 1960 in Houston, Texas the fourth largest city in the United States when I was born, and it continues to be the fourth most populated city uh, in the United States. And I've grown up with mostly whites, Hispanics, and blacks. And I, my, my father was a Mexican-American from Texas, and my mom was white American from Texas. And so that means I'm bi-ethnic. And just for the record, I'm also gay. I'm just letting you know my background so that maybe you can appreciate the things that I want to share with you. So I came of age in the 70s, even though I was born in 1960. And my parents told me as a child that prior to me being born in Texas, there were different schools for blacks, different schools for whites, sometimes different hotels, different uh, restrooms and restaurants. But by the time I started being old enough to look around, which is around 1967, 68, when I'm seven or eight, that was fun. I mean, all of it. Blacks and Hispanics and whites were all living in different neighborhoods, similar neighborhoods, excuse me. My school had blacks and Hispanics and whites in them. The stores we shopped in, you could find blacks, Hispanics, whites, etc. I never saw any of it. And I'm talking 1967 onward. And so being bi-ethnic, being gay, I had an interest in studying different cultures and race. 
want to share with you that I've lived in two other countries besides the United States. I've lived in El Salvador, which is in Central America, and I live in Spain. And I've traveled to over 40 countries. I've been to Africa several times, Asia, all over Western Europe. And I just, Latin America is my home. So I'm looking at the United States from, in some way, from a distance. And I don't like what I see. Okay, I don't like what I see. So in the 80s, I think Eric said in the late 1980s, political correctness emerged, and I agree with that. Political correctness stunned me, but um, I wasn't as stunned as I am today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what stunned me about it was the idea that supposedly we were working towards a culture where all groups will be treated equally and with equal respect and dignity and have equal opportunities to compete for schools and jobs, etc. And yet, when political correctness came on the scene, it seems that those who are not white were permitted to openly express their racism towards whites and people kind of rationalize that by saying, well, it's okay because they're minorities. It's okay in light of our history. It's okay because of who knows what. But I didn't like it because it went against my values. In the 90s, it just a few notches. And, then, and I think it's, it's my opinion in the last five years in the United States, I'm speaking from the United States, now I've been to Canada a few times and been to England a few times, lovely places. I'm obviously more intimate with the U.S. culture than those other two just for what's going on in the United States. I think in the, in the last five years, it, it has come to a boiling point where not all minorities, but enough of them, along with white liberals, who have their own psychological needs, which I can get into in a moment, where they're just at war with whites and Western culture and anything that smells of European history. And at the same time, most Americans, including our minorities, they know very little about the world as a group. They don't travel much outside the country. Most of our minorities and even our whites have never been to or all over Latin America, or so a lot of romanticization, romanticization that's occurring about these non-white cultures, while simultaneously denigrating, openly disparaging whites and anything that's related to European culture. So I wrote a book called White Shaming. And the subtitle is Bullying Based on Prejudice, Virtue Signaling, and Ignorance, in last January, in which I trace first um, how do we get to, to the point where we're at, and I give numerous examples just uh, demonstrating the things that I'm telling you now about U.S. culture. Our mainstream media seems very determined to tell every story that portrays whites in a negative way. The, there's a disproportionate, for example, 
commission of violent crime in the United States. And when I say disproportionate commission, I'm referring to whites versus black. And if you want to include Hispanics and Asian, that's fine. But African-Americans, people of, who are black, I'm not saying all of them, I'm not saying even the majority of them. I'm just saying among those who commit violent crimes, physically attacking people and even homicide, they only represent 50% of our population, but they commit almost 50%, depending on what year, almost 50% of all the murders in the United States by someone who's black. And yet, and it's rare, it is statistically rare for a white person to attack a black person. It occurs, maybe the FBI statistics, but it's, it's like 10 times more that black people attack whites. But the news will never cover that. But they will cover ad nauseum every story on those rare occasions when a black person is physically assaulted or attacked by a white person. Between white liberals, who some have accused of being self-loathing whites, and minorities who some would characterize as activists, or maybe even militants, they sort of join forces and they now control a lot of at the higher institutions of higher education, as well as the mainstream media. And they seem determined to want to annihilate whites and white culture. In the United States, I don't know about Canada and England, but in the United States, every group is permitted to feel proud and to openly proclaim their racial background and celebrate, even celebrate their racial heritage, whites better not ever do that. They would be pounced upon as being a racist. So it's a bizarre situation that I think is going to result. I, I think the future is, is grim. <laughs> I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but I've often been saying, how much longer will whites put up with this? where they are being battered incessantly for just being white, and yet they're supposed to remain quiet while other groups do the, the badgering, the battering. And uh, I don't know where it's gonna, where it's, that's gonna be the end. So that's one thing. Um, and I, my, my book does offer some recommendations for how to try to put the brakes on what I just described to you. First off, offer a, an historically accurate education in our schools. One quick example, in the United States, this happened to me when I was growing up in schools in the 60s and 70s. It happened to my sons when they were growing up in schools in the 90s. The topic of slavery, which is something that Americans just cannot get over. The topic of slavery is always about what whites did to blacks. So what's rarely and almost never mentioned is that it was black Africans who raided, stole their fellow black citizens and put them on the international market. The, so many books, and I went to Africa, to Ghana a couple of years ago to interview a history professor at the University of Ghana in Accra, the capital, 
whose specialty was slavery and told me how whites never entered into the interior of Africa to ever grab people because they would have been killed. They didn't have to do that. Blacks already, local black Africans, the people with power already had people lined up, storing them in warehouses, waiting for the ships to pull in to ship them off to the international market. So in the United States, if people knew, if Americans knew that slavery was kind of something that both whites as buyers and blacks as sellers shared in terms of the responsibility, I think they might get over this relentless indictment of whites over slavery. But Americans are not taught that history. Also, I can give you the data for this. Some other uh, researchers did an extensive several-year project looking at the data in Africa and Latin America and the Caribbean and the United States. They wanted to know, based on the best records they could get their hands on, how many Blacks were actually transported to the New World, and where did they go? And one of the more striking findings was that a little over 96%, a little over 96% of all the Black Africans who came to the New World went to Latin America and the Caribbean. Less than 4% came to the United States. But you don't find anyone in the United States who's angry at Hispanics or Latinos over their history of slavery. Latin America is my home away from home. I've been to 18 of the 22 countries. I've lived in El Salvador. I've taught in Mexico, taught in El Salvador, taught in Peru, taught in Costa Rica. Almost all those countries have sizable, visible black populations. And no one seems to be talking about slavery in Latin America. It's an American phenomenon, it seems, that we just can't get over that. So I guess, like, I don't have, I have lost my train of thought. Providing people with a historically accurate education might curb some of this conflict that just seems to go on and on and on. Um, anyway, so. I'm gonna stop there, but I'm gonna share with you quickly what I'm going through because I think Lillian said she wanted to hear something about this. So I teach a, cross, I teach a controversial course called Cross-Cultural Psychology. And in that course, I've been teaching it for 22 years. Each, I teach students how to take a critical look, a critical analysis of different racial groups. It, what they're like the good, the bad, the neutral, and the ugly. So it's not a course where I glorify any group. It's not a course where I denigrate any group. It's a very data-driven course where we're just taking a critical look at the different groups that I cover. I cover Hispanics, Native Americans, African-Americans and Blacks, whites, Indians, and Arabs slash Muslims. Now, at the doctoral level, when I've taught that class in the past, I would cover Asians, but at the undergraduate class, I don't have time to, to and because I live in Florida, and we have a very small Asian population, relatively speaking, I, I don't cover them in that undergraduate course. Nonetheless, in that course, I ask diff difficult questions, and I present difficult data. And there's always been students 
who get upset over the things I say about their group, but I've been doing it in a palatable way to avoid major problems for the most part. The group that seems to always get upset with me are African-Americans who think that I'm doing something wrong if I critique their group, as if their group is above being critiqued. So this past summer, during our riots over the George Floyd murder, I tweeted some things on Twitter that, in my opinion, are not racist. They're controversial, provocative, but they're not racist. Nonetheless, Black Lives Matter at the national level descended upon me and my university demanding I be fired. And I'm not that, I wouldn't ordinarily be concerned about them. I have tenure. And of course, in the United States up till now, it seems like we've had a strong constitution that protects our freedom of speech. But the shocking part was the university itself that I worked for joined hands with Black Lives Matter. And the president launched an exhaustive investigation of me into my 22 year history of the university trying to find anything they can to either discipline or fire me. And as of right now, this was, this has been going on for four months now. I'm still under investigation. I have some attorneys and I anticipate a lawsuit, but this is where we're at in the United States. Some groups are more equal than others. Okay. To use a animal farm metaphor. So I'll shut up and let you, anyone ask questions if they'd like to. Thank you, Professor Nagy. I think we're gonna do uh, all the questions at once at the end. Um, so anyone who has questions uh, in person or in the chat, keep them and then um, you can ask whichever professor um, it's relevant to at the end. Uh, so Professor Rima Wilkes, um, if you could go ahead. Sure. Okay, so I have a written talk. So what I'll try to do is um, once in a while make eye contact with my uh, camera. Can everyone see, am I looking at you now? Yeah. Okay. We got you. Um, okay, so, so my talk is called, What Does It Mean to Learn About Race? Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Rima Wilkes, and I'm a professor of sociology here at UBC. I have been teaching and engaging on issues of race for almost a quarter of a century. At UBC, I teach a course on Canadian society. Among the topics we cover are Canada-US differences, Indigenous rights, residential schools, Indigenous resistance, and renewal. We also cover Canada's immigration experience, including focusing on the Chinese and Black experience in Canada. We look at wealth, poverty, Quebec, and yes, social media. What I especially appreciate is that students tell me they expect the class to be super dull because it's about Canada, and then they find out that Canada is less boring than they would expect. Now, why am I here okay. today? Uh, I'm here to present three reflections I have on learning about race at the university. I've been given assistance with this talk by three others, including Lisa Wilcox. I want to talk about the fact that to teach about race, 
is to teach about learning in three ways. These are mind, body, and spirit learning. And before I go much further, and you think I'm some kind of granola, I just want to reassure you that I have never meditated in my life. In this talk, I'm going to make some comparisons between the political left and the political right. So before I do that, I ask you to hold your hands out this way and then hold your hands out in front of you. Now look at your left and your right and think about how the left can defeat the right and how the right can defeat the left. You will see that it is not going to happen. So yes, I'm here speaking with you today because I have some concerns that the conversation about race is polarized to a degree where there's no room to move. I'm on the left, but I think that the left and the right have boxed each other in. And that is why in my mind, we are in very dangerous times. When it comes to matters of race, the political right centers whites as so-called good guys. Whiteness is a social construction about what we think is a visible racial category and is often essentialized as the nation. The right often denies the experience of non-whites and blames non-whites for their struggles. The right also presents itself as threatened by non-whites. State practices that demand assimilation into whiteness, into the nation, demand either literal or figurative death. For Indigenous peoples, the church and later state-run residential schools kill the Indian to save the child, as well as the many other oppressive laws and policies led to genocide. These laws and policies defined how Indigenous people could enter into the social construct of whiteness while continuing to mark them as being outside the bounds of whiteness. This included giving up status in order to enter the university. Now, is the state's demand for assimilation into whiteness even a possibility, an option for all groups? No, others have been prevented from ever attaining said whiteness. They were marked as so outside the bounds of whiteness so as to be subhuman. The genocide and deracination that was slavery, and I strongly believe that there is a need to understand slavery as genocide because deracination is genocide is one such example. Slavery was not discrimination and slavery was not inequality. To think of race in such a way can at times trivialize it. The left centers non-whites, the people of color, as so-called good guys. Sometimes this entails centering non-whites as the left sees them, not, sees them to be not simply as they actually are. A growing race narrative coming from the left does not simply center the struggle of those experiencing racism and genocide in particular places. Rather, it also entails a denouncement of whiteness and by implication, white bodies. This works to invert the logic used by the political right. While well-intentioned, this inversion of the same binary logic used by the right is not going to end racism in the long term. We do not know about individual life stories of these people that we see as white. We do not actually know about the individual life experiences of the people that we see as people of color either. 
if we could actually write life stories just by looking at bodies, then there would be no reason to talk to anyone. Now, whether people watching this will hear this message in the way it is intended is another matter. I can only say what I have to say. Certainly, listening is not taught within the academic structure. I've been in the education system my whole life. I've come to the realization that I've been institutionalized. I'm not going to debate either Professor Nagy or Professor Kaufman. I know that will disappoint some of you. Others are angry that I'm here at all. In fact, the ultimate message of my talk may disappoint. This is because, and I had to get this line in somewhere, in the immortal words of Megadeth, he sells, but who's buying? The mind, being in the place of not knowing. I've made every attempt to try to educate myself and to see self-education as a lifelong journey. It is a process, not an endpoint. I see being a professor as a position of great honor in which my job is to weave understanding and learning together. I have and continue to read literature on race, ethnicity, Afro-pessimism, settler colonialism, ethnic studies, native studies, intersectionality, necropolitics, and genocide. I've tried to educate myself on events outside of Canada and the USA. This includes attending seminars, talks, and learning circles on residential school, on colonization, on anti-black racism, on anti-immigrant sentiment, on genocide here and throughout the world. I've also tried to listen to people from various groups, what they have to say, but who might not have an official platform for their own views. More recently, I've also tried to educate myself on what the right thinks. Because lately, I've begun to realize that things have gotten so polarized in academia that I wasn't even encountering these views. All I knew was what is said by the left, and I was just hearing about them. When there is a them separate from an us, and when they become the problem, is when there is a problem. Therefore, I am trying to uh, familiarize myself with what conservatives are saying about race. The Coleman Hughes, Thomas Sowell's, and the Douglas Murrays, the Eric Kaufman and Charles Nagy's. Nagy? Had to get that in somewhere, I'm not actually sure if either of you would place yourselves on the right, so I'm happy to be corrected on this. Others as well. While I do not consider myself particularly well-versed at this point, I do think it is important that I know what these arguments are and that I continue to engage with them. I am fairly certain that none of us can ever be 100% right on any issue. In fact, I am 100% certain that none, no one is 100% right. Certainly, I would like to think that being exposed to these other views, to both the left and the right, has helped me to better situate the material I am presenting to students. The body. Trauma is in the body, and race involves the body for all of us. Teaching about race and racism entails acknowledging that we all have bodies. If you are watching this, I kindly invite you to pay attention to your body and its reactions, including your reactions to my body when learning and talking about race. This applies to everyone. The body often reacts faster than the mind. That is how we might know that someone is a creep even before they say anything. 
Learning and talking about race is an embodied practice. So I think all of us, when learning about race, need to pay more attention to our bodies. We need to ask ourselves, what am I feeling right now and why? Racism and racial trauma is a deeply embodied experience. The right has often denied this embodied experience. The right sometimes cannot understand racial trauma. It tells people to get over it. For people who have been victimized by racism, there is a damage to the body that cannot be undone. Now the problem is that this internal damage cannot be seen, but people live with it every day. What trauma also means is that two people can have the same experience, and one person will feel it very differently because of their previous experiences. So there needs to be an understanding that others may be having completely different embodied experiences. If the person listening doesn't have this embodied experience themselves, they then go on to assume that it cannot be happening for the other person. The left, on the other hand, only allows certain bodies to have this embodied experience. The left has, with binary categories of white and non-white, or white, black, or white, hip-hop, decided a priori who is and who is not racialized based on what it thinks it can see from its own positionality. And so here I do have something to say to the left. The leftist narrative right now seems to be that if you do not have a racialized body or racial trauma, then you are essentially a racial oppressor. I completely reject this narrative. First of all, this encourages everyone to find reasons why they are a racial victim, because morally, this is still better than being an oppressor. However, seeing oneself as a victim is not helpful. We should acknowledge what every single individual has gone through. However, if you are alive, you are not a victim. You are more than that. You are a survivor and you are strong. So here, I invite you to reflect on how what I am saying matters for your own life. Second, seeing yourself as an oppressor is also not helpful. No one is inherently racially oppressive at birth. Regardless of who someone's ancestors are, the son shall not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. To make anyone racially oppressive based on ancestry, nationality, or body type places them in a place of profound shame. Guilt is about what you have done. Shame is about who you are. Therefore, when it comes to narratives about race and trauma, I reject the understanding about race and embodiment on both the right and the left. I would like to take this opportunity to briefly speak to this on a personal level. Race is not just an intellectual issue for me. I did not just receive a wake-up call about racism this past few months. I have spent a lifetime living as racialized. This does not mean that I identify as a person of color. However, I think in moving forward, it might be acknowledged that racialization comes in many forms. There are many kinds of racism and many different experiences of racial trauma. Resentment-based racism is not the same as superiority-based racism. Anti-Asian racism is not the same as anti-Black racism. Because of what happened to my family during the Holocaust, I have lived with race my whole life. 
people often think that race is about the survivors because that is who they can see. Actually, race is also about those you can't see, the ones that didn't survive. Living with race is having to tell oneself that it is not happening all the time. Living with race is when a friend says to you, I always wondered why your family was so small. Living with race is having to think about the place where one isn't even good enough to experience racial discrimination. You don't get over extermination. You don't get over being liquidated. You don't get over that in a lifetime or even a generation. But in saying that, I want to be extremely clear to anyone listening. I am not trying to displace anyone else's story. I think that the realities may appear to contradict each other. Certainly, what this does do is create some enormous challenges for me when it comes to race conversations. On the political left, because I look like this, I can only ever be a racial oppressor. At best, if I just stay silent, or perhaps if I speak out in defense of some and denounce others, or support the right policies, I can aspire to being one of the good whites, an ally. On the far right, I can also only ever be a racial oppressor because, well, you know, they don't really like the Jews too much. On the left, I have white privilege, and on the far right, I have Jewish privilege. On the left, I uphold white supremacy, and on the far right, I uphold Jewish supremacy. When the left tells me I have white privilege, that is anti-racist. When the far right says I have Jewish privilege, that is racist. From where I'm standing, the difference between what racism and anti-racism has to say about me is exactly the same. Either way, despite being in a family that is still trying to recover from racial genocide, I'm racially privileged and racially oppressive. I think that, my friends, is what they call intersectionality. The spirit, cultivate humanity. Within academia, we teach a lot of content but we don't often teach what it means to be morally just. One of the things that is striking about both the Holocaust and the history and legacy of residential schools is that the people who perpetrated these atrocities thought they were doing the right thing. They were not thinking that they were evildoers. They thought that they were the good guys. To me, this is one of the major lessons of history. We are never going to solve this thing called racism until we face up to the fact that racism is within all human beings and understand that racism has exist, existed for millennia. Racism shifts and changes over time and is called something else, but always reemerges in the same way. I do not think that having the right opinions or believing so makes one a morally just individual. Morally just people are to be found on both sides of the political spectrum, and morally bankrupt individuals are also to be found on both sides of the political spectrum. Doing the right thing is not about politics. It is about humanity and beyond. So no, I do not believe we can fight, anti -ra fight racism. What I do believe, however, is that if racism is within all of us, that then this must mean that so too is anti-racism. And with that, I want to end by illustrating what I think real anti-racism is. Real anti-racism is not the politics of alliance. I am not your ally. I do not want you to be mine. Real anti-racism is far more than that. 
I am your brother and you are mine. We are all in this together as human beings and as connected to the earth. Last year at a conference I attended, one of the keynote speakers was Eloj Butera, a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. I would like to take this opportunity to say to everyone watching that all victims of genocide are victims of racism. They are victims of racism irregardless of the color of their bodies. They are victims of racism irrespective of the bodies of the perpetrators. Until you understand that racism is not simply a matter of what bodies look like, you do not fully understand racism. Eloj, if you ever do watch this, I greatly hope I am doing justice to this part of your story, and I sincerely hope it is okay to mention you. I retell what I remember because it stuck with me so much. It is a story I will never forget. He said that as his family was trying to flee, they went to a neighbor's house. The neighbor belonged to the group committing the genocide. His father asked the neighbor if they could be sheltered. The neighbor said no. Then the neighbor had the audacity to ask Eloja's father, who was in fact a medical doctor, to look at a rash on his arm before leaving. And despite the neighbor's unwillingness to shelter them, the father still looked at it. To me, that father exemplifies what it means to be an anti-racist. To be an anti-racist is not simply to see the humanity in the people who are like you, share your politics or who share your suffering. To be an anti-racist is not simply to be an ally. Rather, to me, to be an anti-racist is to see the humanity in your enemies. This is the kind of human being that I would like to aspire to be. It is the humanity in the world's greatest moral and spiritual leaders. Those are the people we should be looking to right now. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Professor Wilkes and uh, all of you actually. Um, we're gonna move on to our question period. So um, if anyone, will open it up in person first. Um, would any of you like to ask a question? Okay, uh, they're on a delay still, so we'll start with uh, people in the chat. Um, we had one here from Aaron. He said, um, this is for anyone who wants to answer. Uh, what would you define as white culture and how does that correlate to the common North American standard of the culture? Um, and how can it be attributed to a skin color? Oh. Okay. Um, well, I, I, we could have a whole discussion about. <laughs> you can hear me, right? Okay. So I think there's something called white identity, and um, culture is not the same thing as identity. Culture could be the language, for example. Uh, identity is sort of narrative of, of peoplehood, uh, which is distinct from that. Um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, for example, in the U.S., you've got people of Irish and Italian and so on background but they're typically mixed so they typically have four or even 16 different ancestries um but the, they, they might have a central identification with one of those ancestries such as german or irish and then a secondary identity is european it's a bit like being uh, italian and european so it's sort of outer layer of identity um now nation which is the territorial uh, political unit 
uh, is something distinct from ethnicity, which is the ancestry collective memory-based uh, group. There is a relationship, however, that most nations were formed on the basis of a dominant ethnic group. And so in Canada, it's a bit confusing because you've got the British and the French, uh, to some extent the native, that have formed that. Um, but there typically is a, a sort of the nation-state culture is usually going to take the language from the dominant ethnic group. So the British gave the language to the English part of Canada. And so there is a sort of umbilical connection between these two, but they're not exactly the same. Um, so British doesn't, you know, British Canadians don't define what it means to be a Canadian and, 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 but they are, you know, a very important component of that. So I, I, I mean, it depends what this question means in terms of white culture, but the term culture I find to be very loose and not particularly useful compared to the term identity, which is a subjective. So it's a subjective, uh, condition and not an objective characteristic like skin color or language or anything those objective characteristics are deployed by the identity as a boundary marker of identity um, and so that's the, that's a crucial distinction I hope that cleared it up rather than complicated it great answer thank you uh, would anyone else like to answer all right uh, we'll move on to the next question then. Um, Eduardo says, um, what do you think is a good strategy to uh, avoid the persecution of racial minorities as well as white people? Can I jump in? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Why don't we all make an agreement to confront racism wherever we think we see it, not just selectively. I, I, I agree with that. Let me just, I don't, let me add a th something which I think is, is useful here, which is that what we're aiming to do is, is maximize, uh, is to optimize the system. So we don't want to go from being prejudiced against minorities to prejudiced against majorities. We want to optimize it so that we are actually not prejudiced against anyone. And if, if to compensate by saying, well, this blacks were discriminated against in the U.S. in the past, so to overcompensate, we're going to tilt the scales against the whites. All you're doing is you're actually shifting discrimination from one group to another. The goal should be to actually get to that optimal position, not maximize the minority interest, but optimize the interest of all groups. So... That's how I would put it. And I think sometimes on the left, what we've had is a quest for maximization of minority interests rather than optimization across all groups in the system. Good clarity. Thank you. Does anyone else want to try to tackle that? <laughs> uh, okay, we can move on. Um, Corky, who's here in person, has a question. Corky, if you want to approach. Hello. Am I on the screen properly? Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much uh, to your three speakers. Uh, I think it's Kaufman, Nagy, and Wilkes. And I've watched racism since the 50s. That's one nine five zeros until today. And to me, it seems, uh, for the most part, gone. And now people are fighting over the scraps. And I would say that, for instance, immigration 
if you really dig down, is not about race, in spite of what uh, Dr. Kaufman said, but about uh, religion and the environment. About religion because Muslims uh, don't, don't assimilate very well with others, and about the environment because overpopulation uh, is really damaging the environment, and if the countries which are overpopulating can just leak off their excess to the underpopulated countries, that makes the whole, the whole world overpopulated even more. I can answer. Uh, can I take, can I answer a little bit on that one? Maybe not the whole thing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess I would say, um, so the first piece that I think needs addressing is um, the, the racism is gone argument to me. Um, there's two pieces to that. One is I really strongly believe we need to uh, bring the trauma piece in still because that's why people can't understand why someone else might get upset about the same thing. And it's because they're still carrying the racism from the past. Um, and so, so that's um, a piece of it. And, and people keep like, it gets passed on through the generations. And also um, when, when the past doesn't get properly acknowledged, then there's a, like, it just keeps the hurt keeps festering, right? So I think that's a huge piece of what's um, still happening. And then uh, the other issue is that we have, we do have to be quite careful in um, locating th this thing called racism as this is this group, this group is the group that experiences racism because racism shifts from group to group to group. So um, for example, I've had people tell me that are from Muslim backgrounds that they thought until 9-11 happened, they thought they were kind of white. And then 9-11 happened, and then now they're suddenly non-white again. So so it shifts who can be the victim of, of racism. And arguments about not being able to assimilate to me, that I don't think it's totally true because we forget that historically... Um, those, I would say those claims have been made by against all groups. So, you know, Karl Marx wrote this thing on the Jewish question, and it was all about how Jews cannot be assimilated, right? So to me, the same thing is being said about Muslims, like they cannot, like it's false, right? So um, I guess that's what I would, I would uh, say to that. Thank you. I, I just want to add to that. I, well, a couple of things. One, I agree on the Islam question that First of all, I think that um, some of the concern over Islam is, is ebbing or slipping now, partly because of what's going on in the Middle East, uh, the decline of some of the, the violent Islamism it appears to be declining. Secondly, I, I think if you look at support for the populist right, in, if you say Austria and the Freedom Party there, they didn't even mention Islam until about 2008, and prior to that, they'd already achieved almost 30% support. So I really, and in the US, I still don't believe Islam is the key issue. Rather, I think it's the Latino undocumented immigration issue. So actually, I'm not so convinced that Islam is, is, is central to this, as central to this story. What the other, but where I would, would agree with the, the last question is this issue of the decline of racism that on so many of the indicators around interracial marriage, around 
attitudes to having a black boss and so on, all of those indicators have moved in a much, much more positive direction. And yet, at the same time, concern about writing about mention of racism in academia, in the press, et cetera, has been expanding and expanding and expanding. At the same time, the actual incidence has been going down and down and down. And I don't think it's enough to talk about trauma. Now, I have an example where I, I also come from a, a background Holocaust survivors. We could, uh, you know, my, I've also got Chinese immigrant uh, in my background, Latino in my background. Now, one could, uh, one of the problems I find with the trauma discourse is the assumption that it is just an automatic thing. Uh, I think that's true if you experience the trauma. But I think once we move into the second generation, and this is, comes to be a matter of uh, social construction, not entirely, but I think there's a strong element of social construction where one can opt into different narratives. You can opt into a trauma narrative, or you can opt not to, to go for that trauma narrative. I think there is a problem when we get into uh, the assumption that it is noble to identify as a victim, to identify with the trauma narrative, and that's more noble than identifying with a, a, a different narrative, which might be perhaps more optimistic or positive. We don't want to forget the trauma, but I think there's a real danger if we go down the road of particularly competitive trauma claims. We see that in many ethnic conflict zones, not just Israel-Palestine. We can go to the former Yugoslavia. We can go to uh, India. The, the Mughal Empire, the Muslim Empire, is seen as a trauma for Hindus. And so on and on it goes. I think there is a point at which we've got to try and put those in context. Uh, similarly with slavery, similarly with conquest of native peoples, which is a constant in human history, both of them, um, to try and sort of say, yes, this is important, but we're not just going to go down the road of uh, victimhood and taking on that particular mantle. May I jump in to say something about all right, Dr. Kaufman? Go ahead. You go, you go ahead, Charles, yeah, or whoever. I want to add something, too. So you going to go first, Dr. Kaufman? Go ahead. Yeah, go, go for it. I'll finish. I'll finish. Somebody else. <laughs> can I, I'd like to say, can I respond? Lillian? I'm fine yeah. with you so, going. I wanted to say kind of in response, um, the reason, so I'm not trying to replace trauma with victimhood or say that, like change the victim label to trauma label. I'm trying to say that there are people that do have this thing. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they look like. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that um, therefore they have trauma, they can do anything, say anything, but it does to me often explain why people experience things very differently and others cannot understand that. And I mean, sexual assault is a very good example. You cannot see the trauma, but people have, you know, it's, so it's not, I'm not trying to replace it. I'm just saying we have to give people the benefit of the doubt and we don't know, we actually don't know what their like, like life's, we just don't know, right? Because in their body, um, they could be having experiences that we don't really know what that's like for them. So I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say we can't. I, I don't think I'm trying to make the next week is what I'm, I, I'm just trying to say there's things we can't see. May I jump in now? Yeah, go ahead. 
I'll say two things here, and, and of course we don't have to agree on what I say, that's fine. We're all very quite nice civil people, so <laughs> disagree and still be agreeable. Number one, I think Eric was on something when he said there's a difference between those who actually experience mistreatment versus those who kind of think they've experienced mistreatment when they're just really being rewarded or reinforced or being a victim of some sort. In the United States, it's not uncommon for some to many, for some to many African-Americans to want to talk about Jim Crow or slavery. And of course, they've never even lived, they're young, they're 20 years of age in college. They've never lived in during the Jim Crow in the South of Texas, in the Southern United States. But they seem to enjoy pretending that they somehow are victimized by that. So I think I heard Eric making a distinction between those who really have experienced trauma or victimization versus those who somehow derive some psychological needs by proclaiming that they're somehow victimized when they haven't experienced that actual trauma. The other thing that I want to say is about Islam. Canada and the United States are lucky in the sense that the Muslims who come to the United States generally are a select group of Muslims. They know what they're getting into. They know what the Western culture is like. And many of them want to escape the toxicity of where they come from because there's many facets of Islam and Muslim-dominant countries that are very oppressive. So I would point out to whomever is listening here that Muslims in the Muslim-dominant world have values that are clearly incompatible with our values. The, there's only one God, and that's Allah, and, and, and no other God is real. That arrogance, that religious arrogance is a problem. That's religious bigotry. Instead of adopting the position that, well, Allah is our God, and we have to respect other gods. The treatment of women, the treatment of gays and lesbians, when I was in Morocco, a Muslim-dominant country, I did not dare, and everyone told me from Spain, my friends are in Spain, they told me when I went to Morocco, don't mention that I'm gay or have a husband, and don't mention that I'm an atheist. So I didn't, and people seemed so nice. I walked all through Morocco and thought everyone was so nice, but I didn't want to take a chance and find out what might change if they knew I was an atheist or if they knew I had a husband. There's some very problematic values in the Muslim-dominant world, and most Westerners don't know that because they've never been to a Muslim-dominant country. They just see the Muslims who have, the select group of Muslims who have volunteered to come to the Western world because they're attracted to our values. Both of you want to say something, go for it. Well, I'll just be quick. I, I'll just say that I think it is, I, I think there's some truth there. We don't want to gloss the homophobia, but it, but also I think there's a spectrum, a spectrum of views as well. It depends on the country. Some of them are uh, somewhat more liberal um, than, than others. But So Lebanon, perhaps, and maybe Algeria to some extent. So it depends. But yeah, obviously we want to criticize where criticism is appropriate, but also recognize there's homophobia too in in the sort of strict versions of other, other Abrahamic faiths as well. That's all. 
I might say that another way of looking at this would be that I think it's important to possibly separate authoritarianism from the religion because sometimes religion gets used in particular ways by those in power. And so we also know that Christianity was also used in very negative ways historically and probably still to this day. So I guess I would, I'm not saying we can't criticize certain regimes, but I'm not sure it's about the faith. I think it has more to do with the way we got to separate out regime and faith, I guess. Because it's kind of like saying something in China is to do with the spiritual practice and it can be misused by anyone, I guess. I just want to point out quickly to Dr. Kaufman's point that in the Muslim dominant world, culture and religion are so intertwined that it's hard to disentangle the influences of those two sources. I agree. I agree. Although some of the latest data coming out on some of the opinion surveys from North Africa shows a significant rise in non-religiosity and up to about 30% now in some of the Tunisia. I think it was Morocco, Tunisia. So all I'm saying is I think a place like Pakistan, a place like Saudi Arabia, absolutely. I just think there's some heterogeneity there. And your point is well taken. Some are more hardcore Muslim than other countries. All right. I think Hannah here in person has a question if you want to approach. Yeah. So I just, I guess maybe like a question or it might end up being a comment, but I think to, I mean, regardless of whether you identify as you're on the left or the right, I think to look at us at a singular religion as sort of homogenous in nature is not so much irresponsible as it's a little ignorant because I mean, there are many different sects of Christianity, such as Mormonism that are, in my opinion, just as intolerant as Islam would be towards being gay or lesbian. So I just think it's maybe you're better off looking at it in sort of a heterogeneous sense where, I mean, I don't know. I think, I just think to dismiss an entire religion based on a more extremist point of view is a bit irresponsible, especially when there are just as many white people who practice a religion that is just as irresponsible. Yeah. I wanted to say, you know, the part about this that had me most worried, I'm not a very good debater and I don't really like debating, but to the student, I think you just, that's exactly, I think you made an excellent point. That's, I feel like I should have said that. That was, I thought that was a really good way of saying it actually. Oh, sorry, Charles, you want to come in? Please. I would like to say to the student, with all due respect to you, with all due respect to you, I can go, I, as a gay person with a husband can go anywhere in Utah and no one's going to bother me, but I cannot roam around in Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, and with my husband and let it be known that he's my husband. So there's a qualitative difference that you're missing with all due respect to you. I want to say that it might've been different, say in the 1950s, let's say in say sub-Christian societies or Catholic societies. So that's right. 
So part of this is a temporal thing. I, I think, for example, if you take the teaching of a religion like Catholicism on birth control, for example, uh, or abortion, for example, you would think that, you know, you couldn't use birth control or, or have an abortion, but actually a lot of Catholics do. This is where I think it's important to look not just at the text, but also at the practices and the range of practices of the actual lived population. So I think it's, I take your point on doctrine, but I think do, looking at doctrine on its own is, is not necessarily the only way to look at this. So. Yeah, so I guess I didn't end up having a question in the end, but I sort of just wanted to point that out, that I, I think looking at the world in such a black and white way and, and looking at a specific religion is, I, I'm not Islamic, um, and I don't agree with the views of Islam, but to look at any such religion in such a straightforward way and sort of tunneling in on um, that specific aspect of it is sort of ignorant to all the other thousands of religions that may not be as tolerant or the thousands uh, or the millions of people in that religion who are tolerant. So I just wanted to add that. Thanks to you for listening. All right, I think we have uh, more questions from the live stream. Um, okay, someone says, um, to anyone who wants to answer, is there a systemic anti-black racism in Canada? Um, so I don't know if Nagy will be able to answer on that, but can I'll try. Um, if so, does it manifest itself? Um, are there any types of systemic injustices in Canada at the state level? I mean, that question is directed toward whom? Uh, well, to anyone who has the ability to answer. Okay. Go for it, Eric. Well, I would just say that when you throw terms around like systemic racism, I need to see a definition and I'm a social scientist, so any sort of statement about the world needs to be falsifiable, uh, according to Karl Popper and the scientific method, in order for it to be uh, something that's rational rather than just an ideology or a sacred value, right? So I need to know what the term systemic racism means. How do I measure it? How can I prove it wrong if I'm trying to come up with an alternative explanation? So for example, if there's a, an attainment, a racial attainment gap or a pay gap, um, that's not necessarily indication of structural racism. There could be many reasons for that gap. So in Britain, for example, the worst performing educational group are white working class boys. Um, at, black students do far better than they do. Now, that's not true in the United States, but what are the reasons for that? Could be, uh, for example, it could be economic, could be the cultural resources, uh, the emphasis that, that different groups put on on book learning, for example, the Jews are well, you know, Jews are of course well known for having above average income. Is that because of some sort of Jewish conspiracy? Not necessarily. So on the other hand, there could be, there could be racism going on. Uh, I would only say, I want to see, so I think there is such a thing as structural racism and you can measure it and disprove it. One example would be if you could say uh, the insurance policies of African Americans or, or black Canadians are uh, cost more money than the insurance policies of white or Chinese Canadians, even when we control for um, a person's income, the crime rate in an area, and so on, then we would have something to work with there. We would have an unexplained residual. Uh, why are black Canadians paying more for their car insurance, their home insurance? Maybe this is a legacy, or maybe there's some kind of a, a structural legacy from the past. So that's something we could actually 
concretely test empirically. However, just saying there's a pay gap or an attainment gap, to my mind, doesn't tell us anything. It's just bad science, really. So I'm, to, to my mind, we've got to be very specific uh, what we're talking about when we use a term like structural racism. I worry with critical race theory and white studies, which I was very excited about when it first emerged in the 90s, and I even reviewed a book quite favorably on it, um, is that there's this tendency uh, to begin with the assumption that any gap is indicative of racism, whereas in science we actually tend to have the reverse assumption, which is a theory actually doesn't stand unless it's withstood numerous attempts at falsification and refutation. And I don't see that in the critical race theory discourse. I want to say what Eric said in one sentence to the person who had the question. Unequal outcomes is not evidence of malfeasance, okay? Unequal outcomes is not evidence that there's some malfeasance occurring, racial malfeasance. All right. Um, I think well, if you haven't done the studies like he's alluding to, you can't assume that. All right. Um, Nicholas, you wanted to ask a question. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'd like to first thank all of you for being here. Uh, Rima, it's good to see you. And uh, Eric, I, I believe we've talked before. I just wanted to ask uh, a question. Uh, I'll just give a little bit of a preface. Uh, first, uh, growing up, uh, it was kind of abundantly clear uh, throughout elementary school and high school that I was Mexican, right? Even though I'm not 100% Mexican, it was one of the things I was primarily known for. All the cultural accoutrements that came with that identity was readily apparent in the food that I ate, uh, the language that I spoke. Uh, but something that I experienced uh, when I started uh, being a student here at UBC was that it was not guaranteed that that would be recognized by everybody. And uh, one thing that I noticed was there was a very particular group of people who either refused or denied uh, that identity uh, that I had had for so long. And it was never always, it was not always like a good identity to have. There was always, there was sometimes a problem here and there, but I found that the people who were primarily gatekeepers on what I believed to be my identity uh, were members of uh, what I would say white people. Uh, white people who uh, believed that I was behaving Mexican in an incorrect way, or I was, um, you know, in some way uh, contravening my responsibilities to my uh, ethnic identity. So I'd like to just ask a question, like, why is it so profoundly visible that uh, anti-racist organizations, uh, or even just in general, uh, they, there is a, a certain gatekeeping among uh, non-people uh, of color uh, against this, uh, I guess, white-shifted uh, individuals or people, even if they're not white-shifted. I, I just want to get your opinion on that. Are, are you talking about, sorry, are you talking about them thinking that you're acting white? I'm acting white, or they'll mention right. me as a white supremacist. I'll be a, a white supremacist, or I'll be, um, in some way or another, I will, they'll, they'll just never mention the fact that I am uh, not uh, 
growing up not considered white. Uh, ever since I arrived at university, that's the only uh, identity that's been ascribed to me, white. Right, so uh, I think part of, part of what you need to understand, or I don't want to interrupt if anyone else wants to jump in, but, but part, partly the issue of, a lot of this is driven, I mean, the main driver, I would argue here, is the white liberal. The white cultural leftist is really, and it's important to understand this has a long history. It's not just the last 10 years. You can go back to, this really begins in the 1910s, this idea of romanticizing the other and denigrating the ethnic majority starts in the United States in the 1910s. Already the Anglo-Protestant intellectuals were saying, we're boring, we're repressed, we're not exciting, and look how interesting the European immigrants are, and then the blacks with their jazz coming in the 1920s. So this is actually a long development within the cultural left uh, in the West. And now we're re we've reached the point where it has become what John McWhorter calls the religion of anti-racism, which is mainly a white thing, by the way. The currency in this religion is the idea of victimhood and oppressorship. And so part of this is simply, it's, it's all of, if you look at the, the ritual, the, the bowing, the taking the knee, all of that incantation, I mean, McWhorter compares it to saying amen at a church service. This religion is very much a substitute religion for a lot of white people. And I think you're probably bearing, you're probably seeing that because in their view, you should be playing the role of a, a victim. Or if you, if you don't fit any of the victim boxes, then you have to be an oppressor. It's this very binary view of the world in which oppression and victimhood is worshipped. Uh, and it's very unhealthy, by the way, very unhealthy for minority groups and their chances of success as well. It's worth mentioning. Uh, Rima, I'd like to hear from you. Sure. So, yeah, I've thought a lot about this as well because um, it's, it's speaking to this, um, you know, who has the right to speak on race, right? And what should they be saying? And and you're basically your existence is interrupting the narrative in particular ways, right? So, um, and, and it's partly why I think, you know, I'm, I've been watching the US and I, 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 you know, kind of what you're saying is what I see a lot of the, um, the black conservatives saying, you know, just because I don't want to be your victim, right? It's the, the same kind of, um, experience uh and and i've heard from uh german colleagues the same thing that jews that moved to germany are, are being told they need to play this victim role and, and they don't want to do it either right so it's kind of happening in all these different uh, countries and i think it is this issue um i'm actually working on a paper with with a colleague about this which is i mean i think both the left and the right are stuck in a particular type of binary thinking um but the you know if you're the university is 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 a leftist it's pretty left right so so there's a binary of particular centering of, of what the, the victim is and if you don't meet that or want to be that person yeah then um and inter it is interesting because what you said about um then if you don't if you don't uh, play the game then you're 
of that victimhood, now you become a white supremacist. And to me, that's interesting because this whole panel has been, from what I can tell, like I'm the only one who doesn't get to claim any kind of non-whiteness, right? But the other two panelists are like you. But the whole panel is portrayed as white people. You know, it's white people. You know what I mean? It's really complicated. And I think that's part of what I'm, I think what we're mixing up bodies with ideology. And so we're just saying, if you look like this, then you should think this way, or you have this knowledge, or you have this experience, just because I can tell by looking at you. And I think that's really dangerous logic to do that. Yeah. Nagy, you and I share a very similar ethnic identity. I would like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I wanted to tell you, you are the one who get to decide how you identify. And you are the one who gets to decide what your values are. So you don't let anyone else tell you who you are or what your values are. Because what you just what you just described, I experienced it to a T. I'm not brown enough for some of these white liberals. And, and I don't fit the victim model for them. So I get lumped in this white supremacy label, or something along those lines. And I have to just shut them out, shut them up, because I would define my who I am, and my values are my values. And I don't give a damn what anyone else thinks. So you stay strong to yourself. Okay. Nice. All right. Thank you so much, everyone for being here. All right. Uh, we have a couple more questions that popped up in the chat. Um, this one's for Professor Negi. Um, what should white people do to successfully confront this onslaught? Um, is white identity politics the answer? Um, can this be confronted without a position of power? I don't know if I have the answer to these difficult I have an opinion, okay? The opinion is you're only responsible for your own behavior. As Dr. Kaufman alluded to, we're not responsible, no one's responsible for what their ancestors did, not even their parents, okay? So all you can do as a white person is be a nice person, try to, you know, not ever allow any discrimination to take place that you're aware of, no matter who the victim is, but you're also not responsible for the deeds of others. So it's kind of like real simple in my mind. Just try to be the best person you can, but you're not the speech police. You're not the behavior police of others. Um, and don't let others cast you in that role. Maybe Eric or Dr. Coffin may want to add to that. Yeah, uh, well, I, I, did, I wasn't sure exactly what the question about white identity was. I mean, I think we... I think there's an issue of identity. Jonathan Haidt, who's worth reading on a lot of this, uh, makes a distinction between two kinds of identity, one which is based on having a common enemy, uh, and that's a problem. When you, when you have an identity that's based, if, if you're Irish and it's, the identity is based on hating the British, that's a problem. However, there's another version of identity, which is the common humanity form. So you could be Irish and just be proud of Irish poetry and Irish culture and what Ireland has, has succeeded in doing. That's a much more positive type of uh, identity. Um, and so I think that an identity where, where you're proud of your, your uh, 
community, your ancestral group, your civilizational group, but that's not based on a common enemy. I think that's where we are going to need to move to. Now, of course, some people are not interested in ancestry and culture, and, and they just want to be a, a skater or, a, or own a yacht, and, and their identity is based on their achievements, and that's fine, too. Uh, but a lot of people are going to want to, a considerable number of people are going to want to have a cultural identity, and in which case, what I would say is to be able to move to one of those positive forms of cultural identity that is, as Haidt says, common humanity-based, positive rather than common enemy-driven. And unfortunately, the radical left wants to push against their, very often against their will, by the way, minority groups to move to a common enemy form, a common enemy version of Latino, Asian, Black identity, for example, instead of what often was the case prior to that, which was a very much a sort of common humanity form of identity, and still is, by the way, for them, for many people. Uh, but this poisonous ideology is really trying to, to bring out this oppositional, always anti-white, common enemy form of identity, which is very zero-sum, and it's very much uh, not the way forward. So I'm saying, I'm not saying, I would hate to see a world where these uh, group identities are removed entirely. They are rich. Uh, we want to keep that richness, but we want to make it about a common humanity positive form of group identity. Be not a negative uh, common enemy form. Um, I'll just add for me, uh, part of why I find this interesting is it's sort of, I always thought about, I never really understood team sports because to me, whether when they win, it's an, I, I never felt like it was my accomplishment. So I've never really been a, team sport player so so any pride to me in in some group where i don't know what my where i can't really figure out what my role is in the group anyway it's it's kind of i always, always sound a bit hard to to find pride so for me it's kind of i think i'm trying to figure out a way where i, I don't feel pride or shame it's both so but i don't know if that's going to be a model for anyone else right so All right, uh, Corky, did you have another question? All right, uh, we'll see. There's a couple more from online. Um, all right, somebody asks, how come the standard of whiteness and the immigration issue only applies to Western countries such as Canada, the US and England, but not to Asian countries such as Korea and Japan? Well, uh, I think, yeah, you're right, because if you look at the immigration in Japan and in Korea, it's very limited. I think uh, Korea, which has a slightly higher share, it's still only about 2.5% foreign-born compared to about between 13 and 25% in, in most Western countries. Uh, this is all about the development, as I mentioned, of the cultural left and how that ideology, which began in the 1910s, is reaching its peak today. Uh, has expanded the meaning of racism, has sort of considered um, majority group identification to be a form of racism and therefore uh, immigration to be sort of a litmus test of this toleration. Now, it's worth saying that the developing world is increasingly seeing some of these conflicts, but doesn't have the same ideological approach. So. We've seen a lot of anti-immigrant violence in South Africa, for example, black on black. Uh, we've seen uh, 
in Latin America with Haitians going to Dominican Republic with uh, immigration to Chile, for example. So we do see these conflicts in other countries. It's just that the ideological lens is, is nowhere near as, it doesn't have the same balance. Now, of course, there are some good things about the Western approach. You do want to encourage toleration and, and, and you don't want to have this rigid ethnic nationalism, but at the same time, I do feel that in the West, there's been this very sort of increasingly, uh, because of the expansion and concept creeping in the meaning of the term racism, it is actually sort of impugning what are sort of actually pretty valid uh, feelings of attachment to in-group, attachment to nation. It's a question of, of reaching an accommodation between people who want faster and slower change. It's not black and white, it's a shade of gray, but when you characterize anyone who wants slower change as a racist, that is, in my view, contributing to polarization. And I think actually we can learn something to some degree from other parts of the world where they, only to some degree, I still would say the Western approach is somewhat better, but I think we've just gone too far. We've overreached uh, on, on some of the kind of um, expansion and use of this term racism. Professor Wilkes? Yeah, so I, I think for me, um, that where, where I'm trying to, how I'm trying to think about it is that um, in the West, there's this focus or calling it whiteness, um, and it seems to be attached to bodies that appear to be white. And then I think we're getting, um, we're calling the same thing different things. So um, in, a, in a strange way, um, if it's, if we want to say that, Have keeping, you? like we're changing what we call, say, keeping people out of the nation. If we, if it's done here, we call it white supremacy. But in the South African case with, um, I think it's uh, migrants from Zimbabwe. Is that right? Do you want to, like, well, then it's called, over, yeah, it's called, then there it's called uh, xenophobia. And because the bodies seem to look the same, whereas here the bodies look different. And so to me, we should be calling those, like part of the issue is that we're calling those two different things and they're actually the same thing. So either we call both of those I things know, white so supremacy or we call both of those things xenophobia, but okay. having two different words, it kind of keeps phone? us thinking in, in ways that are focusing on a particular way of thinking about racism that actually obscures what racism might actually be. But, but one thing I would say is I do think it is legitimate for countries to want to regulate the pace of change in their society. And that I don't think we can have that conversation openly in Western countries that easily. I mean, I think it is very hard. Whereas I, on the other hand, you could say in East Asia, it's too restrictive. It would be ideal if we had something in the middle, uh, honestly. But I think that right now we're in a place in the West where even to talk about these sorts of issues about pace of cultural change just is just beyond the pale. And I think that's a development of, of Western liberalism and left liberalism, uh, which is peaking, as, as I would argue today, in, in this great awakening phenomenon. Uh, I just wanted to say that I don't want to ever really engage with it with, in a debate with Dr. Kaufman. That's all I can say. <laughs> Okay, so let me just say quickly here, I'm being confusing names. When I say Dr. Kaufman, I'm referring to Dr. Wilkes, is that correct? Okay, I apologize. Every time I said Dr. Kaufman, I meant 
Dr. Will. Oh, that's okay. I've been calling Dr. Kaufman Eric. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Can, we, can we rewind all of this and do it all over? I'm sorry. Okay. You can call me Rima if you like. Thank you. But I, I apologize for every time I said Dr. Kaufman, I meant Dr. Will or Rima. All right, um, we will move on to our next question here. Um, someone in the chat asks, is a post-racial society possible? Um, how do you see the end result of race relations in the West? So that's a big one, whoever wants to take that on. Um, well, what, what I'll just say is that the intermarriage trends are such now that, say in Britain, you know, next century we're going to see mixed-race majorities uh, and actually, so minority groups are not going to keep growing, actually, because of the way the melting and the intermarriage is, going, is taking place. We're going to see these mixed-race majorities emerging um, between early and mid of next century, and that's going to be a new world. I, however, I, I think that ethnic majorities, whereby, which are defined by attachment to ancestry, which doesn't mean the same as race, because you can have one bloodline out of 10 and, and identify with that one bloodline, but be a mix of various racial strains. Um, I, I actually don't see these ethnic majority groups going away. I see them being reconstituted out of the mixed race majorities that will be emerging. So, but that's of course not in our lifetimes. We're not gonna see that. We're gonna see the beginnings of it, we already see the beginnings of, of a big, big growth in the mixed race population. My view is that they are going to identify more with the majority uh, ethnic traditions simply because those have a longer, uh, uh, are more long established and they will be more distinctive in a world where whites and Europeans are going to be, if they're 10% of the world now, they're going to be in small single digits by 2100. So. Really, I think that the central traditions and narratives of the majority are going to remain. It's just that the complexion of the majority group will be much more multiracial looking than it is today. That's how. All right, unless anyone else wants to jump on that one, uh, we'll just take a couple more questions. Um, all right, so someone in chat asks, do you find it morally acceptable for European Canadians to be reduced to a minority in 2036? Anyone who wants to... Well, I don't want to keep jumping in here because I've written about these things, but I, so I really, I'll, I'll let somebody... Okay, all right. <laughs> um, so European Canadians will probably be a minority around... 2050, not 2036. So it's the 2050s. That's the first point. Um, morally acceptable. Um, well, the question is, is I suppose, one of what value do you place on, first of all, ethnicity, and secondly, on the right of ethnic majorities to govern the composition of their societies versus the rights of individuals to migrate across borders, for example. Um, I don't think there's anything ipso facto morally wrong with the loss of a majority. Uh, my worry is, is if the conversation has been repressed, if people haven't been able to express that sense of loss and come at a narrative, which is building on the far right, that 
essentially this was done without consultation by shaming people and this narrative of dispossession and, and what's it called white uh, genocide white genocide right so so that is a very dangerous narrative because it presumes that you have this group with a grievance right um, I would argue that essentially you're getting interracial marriage it's just it's happening you're never going to have this sort of race purity it's not going to i just don't think you can have that uh, so you know you're going to have a i still think you can have a majority group it'll just have different racial uh, racial strains within it but you can still preserve what i think you can preserve are uh traditions and memories including myths of ancestry of these majority groups, even if, you know, yeah, racially they'll be mixed, but in terms of the myths and memories, I think that can persist. And I think that's the most hopeful way for conservative minded members of, uh, you know, white majorities to think. I, I think it's going to be very apocalyptic if it gets down to try to preserve oh, yeah. some kind of race purity. Uh, yeah, uh, but okay, let me just um, wrap up here actually. Does anyone else wish to weigh in on that? Professor Nagy? Nope. All right. Uh, we will move on then to our last question um, from chat. Uh, will mixing of different populations ultimately destroy human diversity? Um, and will that result in a boring world devoid of diversity? really quickly that so mixing of human populations has been going on for a very long time number one number two what i what i would what i think we're where i think we're going is we are going towards a, a mixed race majority but i think god this is getting even more futuristic but if we look <laughs> not one century from now but almost two centuries from now uh you know a lot of the you, you may know about global demography that the world's population is going to begin to decline towards the end of the century because birth rates around the world are below the, need, the, the share needed to replace the population. The groups that all have a very high birth rate tend to be uh, white groups like uh, Amish and Hutterites and Mormons and ultra-Orthodox Jews who... Now, on some projections, these groups are going to be a significant component by the time by, by the time we're looking one or two centuries out through multiplication those groups already in israel the ultra orthodox are are heading towards the majority of the population so i don't think we're seeing the end of unmixed white populations uh if we take a longer viewpoint of history now that's going to throw up a whole other set of problems around religion uh but all i'm saying is i think it, we can't just extrapolate what appears to be the pattern now. Um, so I don't, I certainly don't see ethnocultural diversity going away. I do see blurring of, of racial boundaries, but I don't see the ethnocultural difference, differences going away. Uh, that would be. Dr. Kaufman, the sources I've seen that report what you said, which is declining populations, the sources I've seen has said, with the, with the exception of Sub-Saharan Africa, that correct and you're that's, that's absolutely it depends which which part of so so south africa has black south africa has, has low fertility um 
Ethiopia, Ethiopia has low fertility, but much of Sub-Saharan Africa, we don't have excellent data. This is one of the problems. Seems to have a fertility stall. They're still having around four children. Still come down a bit. I, I'm of the view that those birth rates are going to come down sometime in the next few decades with urbanization. Um, so yeah, my, my view would be we're, I would still put money on a population decline scenario beyond, beyond 2100. Um, but certainly outside Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, uh, much of the Middle East, um, Latin America, uh, all heading either at or below replacement level. Uh, I just wanted to add also um, in, the, in the question of diversity, part of the issue is that at any given moment, how we define and think about diversity keeps changing. So the people that are thought of as white, they would have been seen as sure some kind of diversity 20 on. years ago, and now that's not diversity anymore, right? So it just, um, so even if, um, you know, I think um, Dr. Kaufman's talked about no. people coming right now. beige, right, in the future, but there'll still be diversity. It, it, you know, it's kind of a weird thing because what are we talking about, about how we look or, you know, that the, the the way we define diversity, it's kind of potentially endless because, you know, you look at two people like you, what are you defining diversity as, as skin tone, as hair color, as height, like it could be literally anything. And so, so I don't really know what we, like when we talk about changing in the future, yeah, we're going to, there might be more people with what we think of as something in the future, but we'll define diversity differently, I think, in the future as well. Or maybe we'll all be Amish in the future. It finds a silver lining in everything. Wouldn't that be a future? Well, um, unless any of you have any further comments, I think we'll wrap things up. That was a very uh, productive conversation, I think, and I thank all three professors for um, being able to speak with us today. Um, this whole thing will be uploaded after the live stream is finished to YouTube, so anyone who wishes to can watch it in the future. Um, yeah, so thank you again. And this has been UBC Students for Freedom of Expression, signing out. Thank you, Bye-bye. Guys. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm Nick from the UBC Students for Freedom of Expression. Today we are joined by Mark Hecht, instructor at Mount Royal University in Calgary and former professor Dr. Ricardo Duchesne uh, from or formerly from the University of New Brunswick. Today we are going to be talking about how their points of view on immigration and cultural compatibility have been treated within academic circles, within journalistic circles, and generally how these ideas are treated within our society. So first, I'd like to start off with a open discussion about your circumstances and how we are living in a society where the freedom to express ideas and even within academia are being curtailed by a general atmosphere 
of hostility? I'll answer that. Um, it is really amazing that universities, which continuously claim that they're places where critical thinking flourishes, that academics and administrators included will not allow an open discussion about what really is the most transformative, transformative force of our time, which is mass immigration, and whether diversity um, benefits the West or not. Um, they simply have become, all 